It's a good morning to get into the Word of God and hear and rejoice about who He is. Amen? My name is Lee Grander. For those of you who don't know, I'm a pastoral resident here at Park, and it's my joy to continue us in our sermon series in the book of Judges. We've titled it, When God is Not King, and today we'll be looking at the story of Jephthah. Jephthah. That shit never You want to open your Bibles or take out your phones, you can meet me in chapter 10, verse 6. And as you get there, just remind us last week, uh, Phil brought us through Abimelech and said that it was one of the lowest points in Israel's history. Well, get ready, because today, Jephthah is a lower point in Israel's history. So hold on. We're going to be seeing what happens when the Israelites and the judge here does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. We'll see the increased ruin of sin. We'll also see it pointing to the astonishing character of our King. The big idea this morning, the arrow through our text, is that God is not to be used, but trusted. God is not to be used, but trusted. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would speak to us through your word. God, would you apply your word to our hearts? Would you build us up in love and good works, God? And would you prepare us to be sent out? God, as we dig into Jephthah this morning, I pray that you would refresh us, that you would help us, Father, and that you would guide our steps through your text. May you be glorified this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us for a while, you kind of understand where we're going with Judges. The same story basically happens. The, Israel, the Israelites continue to sin. It's increasing. It's becoming more internal. And yet God astonishingly shows himself as the good king and the better judge. So without further ado, let's jump straight into the text because we've got a story this morning. Verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Asheroth, the god of Syria, the god of Sidon, the god of Moab, the god of the Ammonites, the god of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines, the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they continued to oppress the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. The people continue to do what's evil in the sight of the Lord, and we see that there are seven idol gods listed. Set in the number of completion to signify that Israel has completely forsook the Lord. And the Lord is punishing them or disciplining them, showing that there is a harsh consequence for sin. Verse 10 The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. The Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? 
The Sidons also, the Amalekites, the Moronites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Wow. I told you this was going to be a tough one. First, God says, I have saved you from the seven different enemies, which again gives us hope. The complete saving reminds us that there is no sin, no enemy that the Lord can't overthrow on behalf of his people and for his glory. But we're waiting to see what happens here. We quickly realize that God is not going to save them. The reason because it's not genuine repentance. Rather, the people are trying to use God, which reveals the true God that they serve, which is comfort. Here there is no appeal for God himself, only an appeal for what, he, what they can get from him. God's people are trying to use him to be comforted, hoping that they would say the right things or pray the right prayers in order to get out of a distressful situation. God sees right past our manipulative words, doesn't he? 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The idea of being used, God says, verse 14, Go and cry to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. They became impatient over the misery of Israel. This is good news. The people had a change of heart. They repented, and repentance is this. It's not just words that we offer up to the Lord when we mess up. That's fake repentance. That's manipulation. Repentance is a heartfelt conviction, a hatred of sin that was done. Why? Because what was done, our sin, has offended our holy God. It has caused division between us. God has created us as human beings to flourish in a relationship with him. As we heard in the call to worship in Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will grant you or give you the desires of your heart. It is only in a relationship with God that our heart's deepest longings, that our heart's deepest hurt will find delight, will find healing. We will only be satisfied when we dwell in delight in God. So we need to repent. Followers of Christ are talking to you as well. Not because we would lose our salvation, but because we're at risk of losing consciousness of forgiveness. We would forget that we've been forgiven. And we would lose our sense of peace with God. Church, in the mornings and in the evenings, may we be a humble people that come before the Lord on our knees, on our knees and our hands repenting of our sin, 
asking that the Lord would fill our hearts and allow us to flourish in our relationship with Him. Jephthah's introduced, chapter 11. The Gilead was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his, wife's son, when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And the worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out to him, went out with him. Really quick, if you remember from last week in Abimelech, Abimelech hired these guys, the worthless fellows, so that they would be able to kill his brothers. And this week, the people aren't hired, they're befriended. There's a downward spiral that we see happening in Israel and to their judge. Verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites. Be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. That's an upgrade. It went from leader to their head. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives, me over to, uh, the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. The elders of Gilead said, let's giddy up. The Lord will be witness between us if we uh, do not do as you say. So Jephthah went back with the elders of Gilead, and then and there the people made him head and leader over them. There's an interesting parallelism that's happening here, and it's called an active parable. you got to hang with me for a second. We've heard of parables before, right? Jesus spoke these things, but now we've got a real-life situation that's being uh, deemed a parable. And it's the life of Jephthah. Let me show you what I mean. Jephthah is living as an example of how Israel is treating God. Jephthah is taken from his own home. He is kicked out of his house because of his own people, namely his brothers. Then the Israelites find themselves in distress, so the Israelites come running back to Jephthah because they know he is powerful. They know he's a mighty warrior, and they believe he can solve the problem of their distress. But like God, Jephthah says, are you just coming because you're in distress? Where God then says, I will not save you, Jephthah says he's all in. He will be used by the Israelites in order to obtain the social status he's never had before as an outcast. Let me back up. At first it might seem like, man, it's honorable. You're going back with the Israelites. He does say, if the Lord gives them over to me, right? Then I'll be your head. But when you look at the next verse, Jephthah is made head and leader before any battle takes place. Jephthah is primarily concerned with this opportunity for power rather than having any 
sense of honoring the Lord. If you remember Gideon, he says in chapter 8, verse 23, I will not rule over you. My sons will not rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. Gideon understood that the, that the God of Israel should be the ruler, but he kind of acted like a king, if you remember. Here, Jephthah just doesn't care and takes the king's spot. Takes the king's spot without seeming to care. The story is getting messy because the Israelites are trusting man. And more messy because both Israel and Jephthah are starting to use God. As we keep going in the story, there's one last positive note before it all goes bad. So hang on. Amongst these broken people who are faithful one verse and faithless the next, God shows us an example of what trusting him looks like. We're to trust God, not to use him. Let me say this, Jephthah is a pretty messed up dude. He's got a broken past. He's got in with the wrong crowd. But God can still raise him up to accomplish his purposes. While Jephthah needs the author and perfecter of his faith desperately to kind of realign his faith commitments and center it on the Lord, he does show us what it means to trust the Lord in verse 14 through 28. I wish I had way more time because this is a really exciting bit. But let me give you the short of 11 through 28. As soon as Jephthah becomes the ruler or the king, he begins to communicate with the king of the Ammonites like a king. In verse 13, the, the king of the Ammonites is asked, What's going on with this war deal? And he says, basically, we've been, we're going to fight you because when you were coming up out of Egypt, you stole our land and we'd like it back peaceably. Jephthah says, no way, Jose. I got a four-point counter. His four-point counter goes something like this. One, your history's wrong. We never actually wanted the land in the first place. Two, we were really respectable, actually, as we were coming out of the land of Israel. You know, we kind of bobbed and weaved. We sent letters to the kings and said, hey, can you come through land? No? Okay, we'll just keep going in the wilderness. All good. And lastly, in the historic bit, he said, it wasn't even your land in the first place. We're the Ammonites. The land was the Amorites. Next argument, theological. Which I love. He says, They attacked us in the first place, but God delivered us and gave us that land. Isn't it beautiful that God delivers us from, from our enemies? He gives us a possession and He calls us His own. Thirdly, if you look in verse 25, I think, it says, Who do you think you are? I like that argument. And fourth, why haven't you come to the land in the past 300 years if it was so important to you? Jephthah concludes in verse 27 saying, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. While Jephthah's motives are no doubt not totally pure here, 
There's a great example of what it looks like to trust the Lord. Trusting the Lord looks like, first, knowing what is true of God, and second, acting on what is true of God. Jephthah knows that God delivered the people from the hands of the enemy and gave them this land. So he owns it. He takes it to the bank and he acts accordingly. He argues it back, but as the conversation keeps going, he ultimately says, I'll allow God to be the judge of this matter, entrusting it back to him. In a similar way for us, it is an imperative that we know God's word. Why? Because it will show us what is true of God. If we don't know what's true of God, it will be impossible for us to act accordingly. We'll just make improv decisions based on what we think is best, not on what we know is true of God. One of the verses that I think we should all just write down, look at later, I'm sure you've heard it a bunch, 1 Peter 2.9. It's just an example. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Why should we know this one? It's just an example because it says what's true of God, that he has called us, called us his people to tell us how we are to act. We are to proclaim the excellencies of God. Why? Because he's brought us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. He gives us instruction in his word. Trusting God means storing up what is true of God in our hearts and acting. The story continues and goes down the hill really quickly. Verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. Side note, from this point on, we know that the battle has already been won. God is with his people, and he's not going to deliver his people, because if you remember way back, God was upset. He was impatient with the misery of Israel. This is the astonishing character of God. Even amidst our sin, God still is seeking to deliver us.
he misunderstood the character of God because he didn't know God's word. I know you might be thinking right now, well, I don't actually relate to any of this story. I would never kill my daughter, right? If I made a vow like that, I would break it. But before we jump there, the truth is we do actually deeply identify with Jephthah, unfortunately. I know you may not hang out with the worthless fellows who desensitize you to violence, but you certainly hang out in a culture that is desensitizing you from other things. The second great commandment, for instance, love thy neighbor as yourself. Our culture says, no, it's all about you. Pamper yourself, take care of yourself, spoil yourself. If you want it, go get it. Our desensitization, is that how you say it? Desensitization. Towards the poor is astounding. We can walk down the streets, and I know there's exceptions, but roll with me. We can walk down the streets and not even make eye contact, nonetheless serve or help, as if that person wasn't our neighbor too. Another example, I know you guys have probably experienced this one in Christian circles. It's so interesting that we've been desensitized from the Word of God to a culture that we live in, even about how to combat purity. I've been in the same book. I've asked people, what, what do you do? Well, accountability from a brother, of course, of course. Well, lock up all of your computers and your phones and your gadgets, keep them out of your bedroom, right? Withdraw from the culture. Superseded the word of God. Then meditating on Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. This is a passage that I've been meditating on as I've been thinking about having our son in a couple been thinking of the difficulties that he might face as he grows up. Church, we've got to believe for the sake of our own hearts, for the sake of our children, that storing up God's word in our heart is the best solution for purity, the best solution for not sinning against God or becoming influenced or overrun by our culture. We need to trust the Word of God. We need to know the Word of God. We need to store it up in our hearts. We also identify with Jephthah, and that his idolatry has deep effects on those around him, those who are closest to him. I've been burdened. This past couple months, frankly, for our families, us as a family. We have so many young families with children. 
urge us, let's deal with the idols in our life because they have devastating effects on our kids. It may come in the form of neglect. We idolize comfort so much that we spend all of our time working, putting in the extra hours, but the extra hours lead away from the time in the Word. So we preach as Christians, right, the supremacy of God's Word, but our lives preach the supremacy of work. I know that our kids are great observers. These idolatrous practices that we harbor in our own hearts can be deeply destructive on our kids, our families, and our friends. And as a church, I implore you, I urge you to deal with the idols in your life. The final way that we identify with Jephthah is that we have a hard time accepting God's grace. We have a hard time accepting God's grace. We do find ourselves in this model of works righteousness. And it drives us nuts if we're being straight. I found myself even catching myself in prayer, right? I said, Lord, would you open the eyes of this person's heart? My neighbors, Father, please, and then I would worship you. It's like, wait a second, is that a thin clause? Like, am I doing this? Am I making a vow? I want to worship the Lord and trust that He's still going to do that. There's other of us who are feeling, frankly, guilty about our time with the Lord, saying, Lord, if I spent five days on a seven, is, is that good? Are we good together? If I could just spend 10, you know, 10 minutes in prayer, would, would that make me closer to you, Father? It drives us nuts. We find ourselves in a place of insecurity and we need assurance. Grace. We've got to understand it, otherwise it will be Otherwise, we would be constantly looking for some way to earn God's favor. I like this how passive along. Grace in a child's description. Has anyone heard it? Grace for a child. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. For some of us, we think about religion as the carrot or the stick, right? The carrot faith. Uh, if you just come on, get a little closer, and we get pulled by these things, it's the work righteousness, and we kind of like it, I think. Because we see the end goal right in front of us, and we can almost grab it. Or we've got the stick. They try to beat us into submission. Just listen to what I say. Grace, I have been, you have been saved. 
faith. That's not sure what I'm doing. It is a gift of God. Christianity is a grace-based religion where Christ Jesus takes the beating of the stick and God hands you the carrot, no strings attached. He steps back and says, follow me. That's freedom. Jephthah also points us to a better judge. Like Jephthah, the greater judge was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Unlike Jephthah, the greater judge committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Where Jephthah sacrificed an innocent daughter, Due to his sin, Jesus Christ was sacrificed as an innocent son for the sin of the world. Jesus is our greater judge and a truer savior. In Christ, with Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, we have every reason to trust the Lord, church. For he is with us. God is to be trusted and not to be used. He is to be worshipped. As we close our time, I just ask you to bow your heads with me. Father, after looking at your word, after seeing the ruin of sin, Take a minute. God, we ask that you would seek and search our hearts. God, in this moment of vulnerability, help us to be honest with ourselves. Draw out of us, Father, the idols that are plaguing our lives. Father, in this space, allow us to repent. to experience flourishing with you, O Father. As we sing, Father, as we sing, I am holding on to grace. As we sing, I am fully letting go I am surrendered to your ways. Father, we say I love you for all that you've done for us, for your grace, that you have given us freedom in Christ. God, may we worship you and proclaim now. We are holding on to your grace, fully letting go, surrendered to your ways. For Lord, you loved us.